welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, I was here four years ago, and I can't believe that you would remember how to say hello Jewish style, but I, we'll, make, we'll see if, that, if we can do that tonight. In the land of Israel to this day, the greeting they give to each other is the same words Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room following the resurrection. And in your English Bible, it's peace unto you. But they say that in Hebrew, and the greeting is shalom aleichem. Very good. The way you say hello back to a person who gives you that greeting is you reverse it and say it backwards. Unto you be peace or alechem shalom. So I'll say it forward, you return it. Ready? Shalom alechem. It's a little too Gentile. In order to say alechem properly, the accent is on the k. In Alechem, all right? It's like a heartier handshake. Let's try that again. Shalom Alechem. Very good. Well, we bring you peace that surpasses all understanding. As Pastor already mentioned, I'm with Hananiel Ministries in Philadelphia. Hananiel means God is gracious. And we've been a ministry to reach Jewish people in Philadelphia since 1911. Uh, I haven't been there quite that long, but the ministry has. And what we're doing tonight is also part of our ministry. On April 11th, I'll be performing an entire Passover Seder dinner at the Buck Hotel, and we'll be having some, somewhere between 60 and 90 people. Last year, we had 90-some people, and one woman came to know the Lord as her Savior. So this is often eye-opening for Jewish people when they see Messiah or Christ in the Passover. I, you're going to have to pretend you're not in Calvary Chapel tonight. It's not done in a synagogue. It's not done in church. It's done in the home. If I could, I'd put all of you around the table because it's a family-oriented affair. It's very visual. Now, if I could uh, put you here, you would be able to see it much better, but some of you are pretty far back. You might want to move forward so that you might be able to see it a little better. Uh, look at them just jumping out of their seats. So here we go. I know, so you get your favorite spot, but that's great. Come on, you can come down, you can see it. It's kind of, kind of like making me feel more at home. Go ahead, I'll wait. <laughs> All right, we had a few. Okay, here's a few more. Pastor Joe, I just wanted you to know that I, I gave a, an invitation to come forward, and at least five people did. I said, just... Passover. Did everybody, did you take, pick up a copy of the notes on the way in? Are, are they available, Pastor Paul? Okay. When, when, you, when he comes back in, he'll give, raise a hand, you can get them. It'll just be an outline that you can have available as we go through this presentation. Passover is a unique holiday in the Jewish calendar for several reasons. Number one, it's like two festivals in one. Because on the 14th day of the month, Nisan, is, is a day for Passover. But the seven days that follow that are a separate festival called, technically in Leviticus 23, Hag HaMatzot in Hebrew. And Matzot is the bread that they eat during the entire eight days. The singular for Matzot is Matzah. And so it's during the, seven, the entire eight days, no yeast products, no leaven is permitted in the home. So... Since it goes for the entire eight days, the Jewish people either refer to it as Pesach, Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's also unique because it has a, both serious business and joy. Some festivals of Jewish, like Hanukkah, are very happy. Yom Kippur is a serious one, but Passover has both. There's rituals that must be performed, hand-washing ceremonies, and some of the things that we, if we don't do it, you don't have an official Passover. Then on the other hand, it, right in the middle of the presentation, uh, dad plays a game of hide-and-go-seek with the kids. So there's both joy and serious business. I hope you can shift gears with me. 
from time to time I'll be serious and times will be very joyful. But I do want you to know that we're going to be looking at what it says under the law for doing Passover, what goes on in a modern-day Jewish home, and then finally, wherever it takes place, that something is going to picture what happens at the Last Supper, we're going to insert that too because I'm going to open with a reading from Luke chapter 22. I'm reading from verse 15, or verse 14 and 15. When the hour was come, he, Jesus, of course, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Listen to what he says. He said unto them, With desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now I have a question for you. How long did Jesus have that desire? Isn't he God in the flesh? That means that from all eternity past, there was an, an, an anticipation for this particular night. Because on that night before he died, he was celebrating with Passover, a celebration which teaches the Jewish children about the redemption from the land of Egypt. And the Lord Jesus is going to give it a whole new message of redemption because when he was done that night with that Passover, he said, whenever you do this, from now on when you do this, you're to do this in remembrance of me. So Passover is a, is a, is a, is a giant children's sermon. The Father is teaching the children how God redeemed them from the land of Egypt. And so weeks in advance, if you, since there's no leaven permitted in the home mom has to remove all the products for the seven day seven days of unleavened bread and the one day of passover for that entire eight days they have to remove it from the home no leaven is permitted in the home under the law if you had any yeast products in the home you would have been destroyed and so even now i guess they take it a little serious but i know i know they haven't been killing anybody lately for having yeast products in their home during passover nevertheless whenever passover occurs on the night that passover occurs dad goes through a search of the house to make sure mom did her job right and with these two religious articles a wooden spoon and a feather he's going to look for any crumbs jewish women know what it's like to have a husband who's double checking on her work so what she does is she puts a few crumbs in an obvious spot. Why? So dad stops looking. Otherwise, he'd be looking for weeks. So, you know, something subtle like a loaf of bread in the middle of the piano. Aha! <laughs> and in ancient times, what they would do is they would gather up the few crumbs, take them into a center space, place in the, the town where they would have a bonfire going, and throw away all the extra leaven and ask God to remove from them any responsibility for any leaven they can't find. Well, that's what they used to do. And as I said, they're not taking it so serious now. Sometimes, oftentimes what happens is if mom has leftover donuts or cake or bread that she doesn't want to throw away, now what she often does is stick it in a shopping bag, cover it with aluminum foil, and then put it away somewhere, and, but technically sell it to a Gentile neighbor for a week. Now, if that Gentile wants to keep his bread in my house, what can I do about it? And then at the end of the week, <laughs> she buy, she, she, he, he buys it back or she gets it back. So I guess that's one way you can throw away your living and eat it too. <laughs> I apologize. I, that was really bad. All right, so we had our searching for leaven. Uh, the Passover outline has, as it were, four cups that are, are partake of during the, the entire presentation. In reality, everybody would have one cup in front of them, but they're going to sip from it four different times. And the reason for that is those four cups are symbolic of the four promises that God made to the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And the title of the cup pertains to the promise. For example, the first cup in Exodus 6, 6, I will take you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Well, this is called the cup of sanctification, the one that separated us from the Egyptians. Notice sanctification. I will take you out from the burden of the Egyptians. 
The second cup they partake of is called the cup of judgment or sometimes the cup of plagues because of the promise in Exodus 6, 6, I will rid you of their bondage. So those two are the, the first two cups of the meal. Sometime between the second cup and the third cup of the meal, there's a complete dinner. The dinner is actually part of the presentation, if you will. And when the dinner is completed, we have partake of the third cup of the meal, the first cup after supper, and it's called the cup of redemption because of the promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgment. So it's the third cup is called the cup of redemption. And the fourth cup is called the cup of praise because of the promise, I will take you to me to, people, to be a people. Jewish people actually believe it's a futuristic one when Messiah comes, if you will. Well, those are the four cups that serve as an outline. However, it just so happens that at the Last Supper, two of those cups are mentioned likewise in the Gospel of Luke. I'm reading again from Luke chapter 22. Uh, he, in verse 17, it says, He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. If you were reading that in your scripture reading, you might assume that was the cup that he used to institute the Lord's Supper. Not so. This is the first cup of the meal, the cup of sanctification. The second cup is never mentioned, but in verse 20, three verses later, a second cup is mentioned in verse 20. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. That's the one that he uses to institute the Lord's Supper. And the first cup after supper is the third cup of the meal. And what does that happen to be called, if you remember, to the Jewish people? The cup of what? I guess it's just a coincidence. Or was that in, in Jesus' design all along because he's going to give a whole new message of redemption that night? The fourth cup, I believe he alludes to, he does say he won't drink it again until he drinks it anew with you in the kingdom. So it's also called the cup of praise and so it has a future look to it. In addition to the four cups, there's four questions that the youngest member of the family has to be able to ask his dad. And it kind of, and, and one of the things that is often part of every Passover is a Passover Haggadah because dad might not be a public speaker. So they have to give him a book to give him a guide to know how to go through the Passover. And it's called a Haggadah because it comes from Exodus 13, verse 7, where it says, in that day you will tell your son, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when he brought me forth out of the land of Egypt. So Haggadah means the telling. And so the father's going to have that as his guide. And what the young boy comes up, he's going to come and ask some questions. He'll say them like a cantor would in synagogue. He'll sing them. I'll give you a sample of the first question. He'll come up to his dad and say, Manish tana hala haze mi kohale lo cheve kohale lo donu clean chome tsu matza hala haze kulo matza. He just asked his father, Why is this night different from all other nights? On all other nights we can eat either bread or matza. Why tonight only matza? Second question he asked, On all other nights we can eat any vegetable. Why tonight do we all have to eat? Moror, and I'll explain what that is a little later. Third question, on all other nights, we, can, we don't have to dip our vegetables even one time. Why tonight do we dip them twice? And the fourth and final question is, on all other nights, uh, we eat either sitting up or reclining. Why tonight do we all recline? Now, all those questions will be answered mostly by what's called a Seder plate of items that the dad's going to use to do the children's sermon, as it were. It's called a Seder plate because dad orderly goes through and explains those questions. And a Seder plate in a Jewish home would be very, something very fancy, maybe hanging up on the wall throughout the year. But for Passover, it will come down and different items are going to be eaten to tell the story of the Passover, if you will. In addition to that, there would be another container that will have the matzah. That'll, that's one of the first questions we'll be looking at. 
And it's a, a pouch, if you will. In most homes, it's a, a, a three-layered pouch. And three pieces of matzah are in that. And the father will use that to be able to par- distribute the Passover matzah to everyone at the table. For my demonstration, I always like, got this at, uh, at a gift shop. Um, this might only be used maybe by a rabbi himself. But my Seder plate is on top. This part that has the items that we're going to look at in a few minutes right here. And underneath is the, it's, it's an all together, if you will. I have the matzah. I'm going to hold it up and hopefully, maybe even in the back, can everybody see that it comes with three trays? And that's actually the way you'll find it for every Passover, no matter where it is in the world. They always have this container called echad. As the rabbi told me, that's what he calls it, echad. It means a unity container. So those are the the items uh, that we'll look at in a few seconds. And all the questions are answered except the last one. On all other nights we eat, either sitting up or reclining. Well, it was only for the very first Passover that they were told to eat it with their loins girded, their shoes on their feet, and a staff in their hands. Why? Because they were going to leave Egypt in a hurry that night. Well, they're no longer running away from Pharaoh, so now they do just the opposite. It's an Eastern custom to recline to the left during the course of a meal to exaggerate your freedom. Many of the Eastern people still do that. And as a matter of fact, I believe that's what also happened at the Last Supper. Everyone would have been reclining at the, at the table. And, and uh, it does mention in John's Gospel that John was leaning, where? On the Master's chest or the Master's bosom. That meant he was sitting immediately to Jesus' right. But in reality, they all would have been reclining to the left. And I promise you, they don't sit on one side of the table. They sat all the way around the table. Of course, now that I said that, that's going to make a mess out of many paintings, isn't it? If I say the words, the Last Supper, doesn't something come to your mind? I, I shared this four years ago. I'm sorry, I have to do it again. I have a few problems with the painting in itself. It seems that everybody in the painting looks so handsomely Italian. Um, and they're all sitting in upright chairs, on one side of the table, um, th- this line is borrowed from a movie, <laughs> as if there was a painter in the room and, and got in the room. So everybody wants to get in a painting with Jesus, sit on that side of the table. The Jewish people don't sit on one side of a table for the Passover. But my biggest problem with the paint, I'm starting to get concerned, Pastor. Some people are looking angry already they, that I'm... That that's the holy painting of the Last Supper. But just so you know, if you look carefully on the table, right around here, you'll find little tiny dinner rolls at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, I'm sorry. The painter's name was Leonardo. Now, I wonder why everybody looks so Italian in the painting and why they got dinner rolls. I'm sorry, but... Leonardo, the Last Supper wasn't held in Rome. It was held in Jerusalem. They would have been little five foot four Jewish guys, and they would have been leaning on one another all the way around the table. So if you got the painting, you can fix it when you get home. Push everybody over to the left and please erase those rolls. They don't belong there. All right. On all other nights, we can eat either bread or matzah. Why tonight only matzah? Everybody would break off a piece of uh, uh, matzah if they, only have, if they have a separate uh, piece of matzah themselves, or dad will take, a, take it himself from the top or bottom, and everyone would break off a piece about the size of an olive. And they would tell the children, again, why on this night do we eat matzah? Matzah is unleavened bread, and when they left the land of Egypt, they had no time to let the dough sit out for leavening, and their kneading troughs were packed so nobody could knead the dough, and so we realized that it, when, it, when it was baked, they ate it in haste and it came, or baked it in haste and it came out looking like this. Now, the interesting thing is, before that even occurs, um, dad's going to tell them, well, that's because in Exodus, and I don't think many fathers pick this up, in Exodus chapter 13, 
uh, it does say, when the Lord saw that they, they, when the bread came out, it was unleavened, the Lord said, from now on, whenever you celebrate this feast, you're to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Why? Because the Lord, with His strong hand, brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will eat no leavened bread. Well, if you put two and two together, you can figure out what it's trying to say. In order for bread to be leavened, it requires, well, at least back then, for you to work the dough. I think that's what ladies call that when even to this day, when they're working the dough, they had to use their hands. Well, they had no time to stick their hands in the dough. So when it came out, God said, from now on, that's what the kind of bread you eat because the Lord with His strong hand took you out of the land of Egypt. No leavened bread would be eaten. What God's basically saying is, you want to tell a story of me taking you out of Egypt, get your hands out of the dough. So every time they partake of the bread, unleavened bread, they're, they're, taking, they're reminded of God's hand involved. Uh, at, at, the, at an earlier point, and I forgot to do this because the Passover actually technically begins with the lighting of candles. I got it a little out of order because my wife is not with me tonight, and normally I would have her do that because the lady of the house lights the candles. Unfortunately, she couldn't be with us tonight because of her, uh, her, her MS. She's had a lot, we've been doing a lot of meetings, and she's just totally fatigued. So... We'll light the candles because whenever Passover occurs, it counts as a Sabbath day. If the Jewish people have their if they have the Passover on a different day other than the normal Saturday Sabbath, they'll have two that week. And according to the law, if you don't, you have to light the candles at sundown, uh, or you would be doing work. And the reason for that is, well, if that, if if your kindling lights counts as work on the Sabbath. In ancient times, before we had electricity, it was necessary that you would light it at sundown because that's what you would, the only light you would have had till you went to bed. So now they do it simply because it's been a ritual for, for, for many, many years. All right. Ne next item is uh, the Seder plate. On all other nights, we do not dip our vegetables even once. Why tonight do we dip them twice? I have what's called carpus. It's parsley. And there's a center dish of salt water. And dad would dip the parsley in the salt water two times. And then everybody would partake of it. Before he does, he's going to tell the children, well, the parsley's green. It represents Israel. And the salt water represents the Red Sea. So they'll tell the children about how God parted the Red Sea. They went through on dry ground. A, but a second reason for, for, for dipping, the, dipping in and also a second reason for uh, this, this explanation is that this also represents the carpus, if you will, the, the hyssop that was used on the night of the 10th plague when God told them with the blood they were remember to sprinkle it on the top of the door and on the two side posts. So after they do that and everybody partakes of it, they get the wonderful joy of eating parsley with salt water. Give me a minute. How about five? This is an important cup in my presentation. This is the speaker's cup. Interestingly enough, this was also part of the Last Supper. As a matter of fact, listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. This was the first of what we believe were two occasions on which Jesus points out Judas as his betrayer. This one's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. I'm reading in verse 20. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same will betray me. Apparently what happened at the Last Supper is that Jesus and Judas must have put their hand in the dish at the same time. 
I began that, remember this, I, I began that with one verily, truly, if you will, one truly, and it's dipping his hand in the dish with me. He that dips his hand with me in the dish, but he said this to them while they were eating. This is the first thing that I would have partaken of during the Passover, if you will. If we would have a Passover dinner, that's what, you'd eat, that what, that's what would be first on the agenda. I believe that when Jesus made the announcement, they had already dipped their hand in a dish. That would make most sense anyway, wouldn't it? If they haven't put their hand in the dish yet, Jesus makes the announcement, do you think Judas is going to run up and say, oh yeah, that's me, I'm going to go betray you tonight. No, I don't believe that he was embarrassing Judas. I think he said those words for one person's ears only, Judas himself. He thinks he's going to go out and betray the Lord behind his back. Jesus, if anything, was showing him who he's dealing with at one more time. The man who does miracles, but he also knows what he's about to do. And that became the first of two occasions at the Last Supper. The next item on the Seder plate is, on other nights we eat any vegetable. Why tonight do we all eat moror? Well, everyone once again gets a piece of the matzah, and they dip it in this little center dish called moror, and then they bite down on it. And that doesn't mean anything to you until I tell you that the moror you eat it, the moror you'll know about it because it's horseradish. Thank you, Pastor Paul, making sure we got a good, strong one there. <laughs> According to the Code of Jewish Law, you're supposed to eat enough to bring a tear to your eye. Can you imagine when the little children bite down on it for the first time? It's to remind them of the tears of bondage because of what they were slaves in the land of Egypt. So it makes them thankful that they're no longer slaves. So that's the second thing that we're doing here. Is, uh, one more minute. Okay. Next item on the Seder plate is called chorosit. And chorosit is a mixture of chopped apples and cinnamon and mixed nuts, and it's ground down to look like mortar. And everyone is supposed to take two pieces of matzah, squeeze it together, and kind of make a sandwich out of it. Now, it's very sweet to the taste. And what it's supposed to tell the children is the time when Moses went before Pharaoh and said, we want to worship God in the wilderness, Pharaoh assumed they had a lot of idle hand, time on their hands. So what did he tell them? From now on, you have to make the same bricks that you made the day before because they were making the Egyptian cities. You have to make the same bricks, but we're not going to provide any straw for you so that you can take the mud and stick it together with the straw so it would dry out. So it says in the text that they went through the fields, the Jewish people, and grabbed dry grass or whatever they could to help make the, the bricks without straw. They had increased labor. But, so Dad would normally make one of these and hand it in ancient times to you. To, well, they would just, Dad would tell you to take it and, and, and partake of it. But in interesting fashion, rabbis said, but why are we letting the children eat something today that's so sweet to the taste to remember increased or enforced labor. So it's only optional now to do this, but not around the time of Christ. Uh, the father now, or back then, what they would do, the father would take it, make it, and before he would distribute it, he would dip it in the horseradish and then hand it to them. I believe that this will be the second time that Jesus points out Judas as his betrayer. This one is in John's Gospel, chapter 13. Notice the wording. In verse 21, When Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit, and he testified, saying, Verily, verily, truly, truly. So he's repeating it. It's more than one. Truly, truly, I say unto you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked upon one another, doubting of whom he spoke, especially if this was the second time. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. 
He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus says, he it is to whom I give a, depends on the translation, a piece of bread, a morsel, uh, a sop of King James. It says, when I have dipped it. And after he dipped it, he gave it to Judas. And he said, what thou doest, do quickly. Notice the only two things they have in common is the word dip. The first one is he that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same will betray me. This is he it is to whom I give a morsel when I have dipped it. Normally, that, he gave it to Judas. Normally, that would be a point of honor. You would normally give that to your eldest son. And what he says, what you do, do quickly. I think when I look at this, I think this reminds me of the change of relationship that's taking place with them. Jesus actually had a heartache over this whole betrayal, if you will. The psalmist tells us what was going on. See, it would have been easier to take betrayal from an enemy. But it says, my own familiar friend has lifted up his heel against me. Up until now, the word was friend in Psalms. If that's the case, the relationship for three years he's traveled with Jesus, the relationship has been somewhat friendly or sweet, if you will. But now what's happening? It's about to become quite bitter. And we gave it to Judas. And with that, he went out and it was night. Next item on the Seder plate is a hard-boiled egg. Hard-boiled egg has nothing to do with the original Passover celebration. It was not part of the Last Supper. It's only in a modern-day Jewish home. So why is it here? They tell the children today, we originally had a sacrificial offering at the temple, but now there's no temple. But we used to have a free will offering. So this is a picture to them of a free will offering. Hen normally lays an egg once a day, first thing in the morning. It's offering its best to God. And so what they do is they roast it. Hagiga becomes sacrifice, if you will. And so that's to remind them that we should do the same. We should offer up our best to God each and every day when we get up. So it's a nice little children's lesson. The last item on the Seder plate is Zeruah. It's the shank bone of a lamb. And many times, Mom, we would, we would have had the first cup. We would have already had the second cup. Uh, right before they take the second cup, they remove ten drops of wine before they drink it with their pinky and recite the ten plagues. The wine at every Passover has to be red in color. Why? Because it's to remind them of the blood of the Lamb that was the price of their redemption. But wine is always a picture of joy, so when, what they're doing is removing ten drops of their own joy from the cup before they partake it as they recite the ten plagues. And the fascinating thing is we sometimes miss the significance of why God performed ten plagues. For one thing, it was... Um, it wasn't just because he was thinking, how can I punish the Egyptians? God had a purpose in mind. I'm convinced that after, the, after about the fifth or sixth plague, Pharaoh would have let them go. But what did God say? God hardened Pharaoh's heart that he wouldn't let them go. Why? Because all the plagues in Exodus 12, 12, God says, upon all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment I am the Lord. Every one of those plagues was an attack upon the Egyptians. For example, uh, they worshiped the Nile, the giver of life. Moses puts a staff in it, turns the blood, it became the giver of death. The fish died. The only thing that survived were frogs that were all over Egypt that night. Uh, one of the plagues was darkness. Ra was the sun god. They had darkness over all the land of Egypt except in Goshen where the Jewish people were. But that plague, Ra couldn't break through it. And even the last plague that took the life of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, even the last plague took 
Pharaoh's son's life. Pharaoh was considered a god. He had no power to stop his son's life being taken. And his son would have been the eldest, the firstborn male in the land of Egypt. His son would have been the next god in Egypt. So indeed, God did do what he said, hardened their hearts till he defeated all their gods to demonstrate his glory. The father in the Jewish home, though, will take the shank bone and he'll tell the children in the land of Egypt that night, he'll tell them a Megillah story. I think sometimes it was to help mom get the matzo ball soup ready for dinner. Just something to take up the time. But he does tell them that you could hear the, the, you could hear the angel of death go through the land of Egypt that night. And if you think about it, that's true. You might not have heard what the angel or the messenger did. I myself is what the Lord said would come down. And he said, you, could, you wouldn't hear what he did, but you sure heard his results. Can you imagine what it was like at night as house after house lost their firstborn son? There would have been crying, wailing, and it would have been louder and louder as the night went on. And every doorstep had death on its door that night. It was either your firstborn son or a substitute lamb. The father says, there's a boy, there was a boy back in Egypt, his name was Herb, and his dad was working down at the brickyard. But he's, and his son reminded him, Dad, remember the lamb has to be without blemish, without spot of the first year. We're, we brought it into the house. Remember on the 10th day of the month, tonight's the 14th day, God said we're supposed to kill the lamb tonight and put, place the blood in a basin. And then with hyssop, we're supposed to sprinkle it on the top of the door and the two side posts because the angel of death will go through the land of Egypt that night and take the firstborn male and, of man and beast, and I'm the oldest. So in this story, the dad's... Re- kind of uh, he sometimes will drag out the story and he'll say you could hear him going up and down the street and lo and behold when he got to Herbie Street there was a problem the, the, the dad was stuck in traffic or something he wasn't home on time so the blood's not on the door the angel of death's on his street, but at the last moment, dad run, runs up and he found the basin next door and they were going to share their lamb anyway because they didn't have enough for him, him and his next door neighbor and that was permitted. So he took the basin and he sprinkled the blood on the top of the door and on the two side posts and the angel of death saw the blood and what? Passes over the home. And that's usually how the Jewish children get associated with the word Passover with a little story like that. And oftentimes they'll go, they're glad that he didn't have to suffer that, that painful death, if you will, from the angel of death. Well, what a fascinating visual aid God provided 1,400 years later when God sent his firstborn and only begotten male son. And what was the introduction John the baptizer gave? Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. What a fascinating visual aid. The Jewish people have a shank bone to tell them of that story. From your notes, remember, the, male, the Lamb had to be a male of the first year. That was its prime. Jesus likewise died in his prime. It was brought into the house on the 10th day of the month, but not killed till the 14th. The reason for it, it had to be inspected for blemishes. If you found a blemish or a spot, you had to remove it and you had to get a different lamb. Did anything, did Jesus go through any exam? Well, let's see. On the 10th day of the month, I believe that was when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, or the lamb was brought into the whole house. Did anything happen four days later? Did anybody, did anybody examine him? Anybody examine his credentials? Uh, let's see. How about on the night before he died, he had to appear before Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas sent him to Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. Pilate three times in John's gospel says, I find no fault in him. That's right, because we were redeemed not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but what? With the precious blood of the Lamb, as it were, a Lamb without blemish and without spot. The Lamb had to be killed in Exodus. Literal term is between the evenings. We go to Josephus, a Jewish historian, who says the proper time for slaying the Passover Lamb was somewhere between 12 noon and 2 or 3 in the afternoon. 
Were they not the darkest hours on the cross? Interesting. The blood is now in a basin at the doorstep of everybody's house and with hyssop. The father takes the blood and he had to sprinkle it in specific places. On the top of the door and on the two side posts. So the blood's here and it's 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 here. And as the blood ran down, every home that night was protected by a bloody symbol of what would take place over 1,400 years later when Christ died on such a bloody symbol. The application doesn't give them just freedom for death from one night, but Jesus is God in the flesh. The value of his sacrifice reaps an eternal, everlasting benefit. Whoever puts their faith and trust in the application of the shed blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has everlasting life. The Jewish people have as a reminder a zeruah, a dried shank bone. But we don't worship a dead Savior, do we? We worship a risen Lord. To me, this represents a dead system that doesn't have an application appropriate unless it has seen it, it completed in Jesus. To me, as a missionary, this is the saddest item on the Seder plate. Right before they would break for dinner, the father performs a specific ceremony. The ceremony outlined in the Haggadah says the, the master of the house goes to the middle layer of matzah and as best as he can, he breaks it in half and he leaves one half between the two whole matzah. And then he takes the other half and he wraps it in a linen cloth and he hides it. Remember he said he's going to play a game of hide-and-go-seek? He often has a couple pillows in his re- in, behind his back to remind him they're supposed to recline. They don't recline for the whole meal now anyway. They only do it when they partake of the cup. They recline to the left and drink and then sit up anyway. But yet he does put a few pillows there. And oftentimes what he'll just do is put it behind his back, sit there. Nothing is said as to why, but it's done in every Passover home throughout the world every year. Then we would have a complete Seder meal, matzo ball soup, usually beef brisket or chicken. They will not eat lamb any longer. The reason for that is the temple's been destroyed. They don't want anybody accusing them of offering up a sacrifice outside the temple. So they'll eat anything but lamb on Passover. So after the meal is over, oh, by the way, how was your dinner? We'll wait for you. Normally, my wife Sharon, who's a very gifted soloist, at this time would sing a song. Um, She's recorded three Messianic music CDs. Um, We have a table out there. When you you do leave, uh, you might want to sign up for our newsletter to be able to pray for us as we're reaching out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Her CDs are there. Somebody asks, is there a price on them? No. If you, you can have all three of them. Just leave a donation. And if you don't have anything, you can leave that too. Um, But I do ask that you would take the time to pick up our little prayer card. It has a picture of myself and my wife on it, a little bit about us. You need to pray for that lady uh, because you know who her husband is. She needs a lot of prayer. My wife happens, her mother is, uh, Sharon's wife is, uh, Sharon, Sharon's wife, Sharon's mother is Jewish. And so according to the code of Jewish law, she's Jewish. I heard someone say before the program, isn't there a Jewish guy coming up here tonight to teach the Passover? (laughs) I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not Jewish. I know it's a surprise because God gave me a rare medical condition. I have ingrown yarmulke. (laughs) And and after a while, you start talking like them. and, and it's, I, I'm, I want to save you that disappointment. So if you come out to the table later and somebody didn't, I don't want somebody to come up to me and say, how did your family react when you stopped going to synagogue? And then I tell them I'm not Jewish. And you can also see, almost see the disappointment in their face. And they go, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. 
nevertheless, Romans 11 says, Gentiles are very good missionaries to them because it's God's design. God gave the Jewish people the spirit of slumber and eyes that they would not see so that through their fall, salvation would come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy because he gave us their Messiah. So, there, we just had our dinner. Supper having ended... You don't have to say anything to the Jewish children. They'll, they'll go looking for it because the Haggadah says, whoever finds it gets a reward. And this Haggadah says you should give them a coin. Well, <laughs> inflation has affected everything. They, they won't go looking for less than $5 now. You, a coin? All right. Whoever finds it gets a reward. They bring it back to Dad. He opens up a, of its linen cloth and then the, this, is the, this is called the afikomen. It's the dessert of the meal, the last thing to be eaten before going to bed so that its taste would remain uppermost in the mouth. Dad would break off a piece and distribute it to everyone at the table. Fascinating, though. When he does, my mentor, who was Jewish, my mentor teaching me as I came through becoming a missionary to the Jewish people, said that his dad did the same thing every year. And when he broke it off, he said this. When he distributed it to everybody, he would say, take and eat. Take and eat. Do those words sound familiar? (laughs) Then I guess it won't be very much of a mystery to you if I were to tell you. The supper having ended, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. But what did he add? This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Well, if this is supposed to be a picture of the Lord's body, maybe we ought to take a closer look at exactly what this is. First and foremost, it's unleavened bread. Leaven in the Scripture symbolizes what? Sin. So this is a great representation of Jesus' body because it's without sin. That's not all. In an Orthodox home, this is a machine manufactured and cut version. But even in an Orthodox home, if they're going to make it homemade, they spread it out on a table and they have an instrument that they run up and down to make sure that it has holes in it. Because if it doesn't have holes in it, it's not matzah. Apparently, the first batch must have back in Egypt broke apart. And so they keep passing it down and have it the same. No matter where you go in the world. I'd like to be dogmatic and say, I know for sure everything like that I'm doing, sharing with you tonight was was exactly the way it was at the past last supper I can't because it's not written down it's told by mother and father to the next generation if this is supposed to be the matzah is supposed to be a symbol of the Lord's body can everyone see the flame over here right through the matzah how about over here it's in orderly rows or stripes So the matzah, like Jesus' body, is unleavened, and it's striped, and it's pierced. A few passages of Scripture come to mind. Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah 12.10, they will look unto me whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions and by his... Stripes, we are healed. The matzah, like Jesus' body, is unleavened and it's striped and it's pierced, and that's not all. This particular piece, this afikoman, has taken a journey. It began in a container called echad. Echad is the Hebrew word for one. There's more than one word for one, by the way. I can say this is echad cup. I can say this is yachid cup. But whenever you have more than one item that makes up the oneness of it, it's always echad, like in Genesis. For this cause, a man leaves his father and his mother, and the two become one flesh. That's echad. Deuteronomy 6.4, the watchword of the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is echad. The word Lord or God appears a total of three times. It wasn't the top. It wasn't the bottom. What layer of matzah was, in, was broken out of in this particular echod? The middle layer of an echod. Oh, so there's three in this one. 
If we ask the rabbis over the years, why do you break the middle matzah? Why do you have three layers of matzah? Oh, the three layers of matzah represent high priest, servant priest, lay people. Okay, but another rabbi disagrees with them. Now there's a shocker. They say if you get two rabbis together, you'll get five opinions. Another rabbi says, no, there's a song we sing every Passover at the end, Echod Miodei. Who knows one? One is the number for God in heaven and earth. It represents the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Fine. Why do you only break the God of Isaac? Didn't Abraham and Jacob worship the same God? Why do you break the middle matzah? Best answer we got was, we always break the middle matzah when we say the prayer for the bread of distress. Okay, why do you say the prayer for the bread of distress? We always say the prayer for the bread of distress when we break the middle matzah. <laughs> they, they do it, but they really have no explanation. I think you know what I'm about to say. I present to you the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even these three are one. And it's broken out of a unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at the same time, there's a piece that it's in there. I don't think I can fully understand how Jesus is God and man at the same time and how to completely understand it. All I know is that at some point, Jesus was hanging on the cross. And he was declared to be sin for us. In that process, he he cries out, My God, my God, what? Why hast thou forsaken me? Because nothing less than the spiritual death of the Son of God would have been satisfactory to pay the price for our sins. So the answer to that question was for you and I. How is he broken? Well, he's broken out of the unity of the Godhead. But he says while he's physically alive, it is finished. But he was also fully man. He was fully human. But among all the instructions the Jewish people have for Passover, they were not allowed to break something. They were told in Exodus... They had to eat the lamb in one night, consume it all, no leftovers in the morning. But among all, among all the things you should remember, not a bone of the lamb's body was allowed to be broken. So he's broken spiritually, if you will, in the Godhead somehow. He's made sin for us. But while he's alive, he said it's finished. But at the same time, he was human. And at the same time... We recognize that the father was, he was broken, but he's not allowed to be broken because not a bone of the lamb's body was to be broken. That was the only reason that's there in Exodus was because of what happened when Jesus was crucified. The next day was a Sabbath day. They had to make sure that if you're Jewish, Roman government, if you're crucifying somebody, they have to be dead before sundown. If the next day was Passover sundown, which would have been the first day of unleavened bread, they had to make sure they were dead before sundown. So what you did is you let the men hang on the cross for several hours. What happens is your chest becomes as hard as a rock. In order to breathe properly, you have to push yourself up with your legs in order to breathe or your life will, 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 will just go. But what happened when they, killed, when they crucified Jesus? They, did break, they came along and at the proper time, the two other men that were crucified with him had their legs broken. But it says when they came to Jesus' body, they saw that he was, what? Dead already, thus fulfilling the Scripture, not a bone of his body would be broken from Exodus. I don't know if you get the significance of that. But nobody, this is the reason why, nobody, but nobody took my Lord's life. He chose to die for my sins. But nobody took it from him. He told us that ahead of time. He said, I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to raise it again. But no man takes it from me. So his bones were not broken, even though he was broken out of the unity of the Godhead. But at, this, at the proper time, he wasn't helpless. 
He died with dignity, with nobility, and with majesty when he dismissed his life at his own choosing, when he said, Father, into thy hands, what? I commend my spirit. And with that, what happened? He gave up the ghost. And what says the scripture? And what happened after this? After they took his body down off the cross, what did they do with it? Didn't they wrap him in linen clothes? And then what did they do with him? What the father does in the Jewish home, he hides it. Or give me another word. Buries. Who told you that? That must have been the Holy Spirit because I didn't tell you. <laughs> you know your scripture. He was buried. And now not at the first, not at the second, but the time of the third cup, the cup of redemption, that which was unleavened, striped, and pierced, broken out of a unity of the Godhead, if you will, then wrapped in a linen cloth and buried, is now raised back up again at the third cup of the meal, opened up of its linen garments, and distributed with the words, take and eat. And Jesus said what? Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do. This do in remembrance of me. I don't know if you realize what I just told you is that every year in thousands and thousands of Jewish homes, they're demonstrating the gospel and they don't recognize it. Neither does the church because the adversary in many cases has hidden this information over the years because it wasn't just his death body, it was his resurrected body, I guess you could say, was sharing with them at the Last Supper. There's serious business that has to be performed at Passover, but there's also great joy that's part of the Passover as well. So it's unleavened, striped, pierced, broken, buried, and raised. And with those words, Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body given to you. Now, my Jewish friend who shared this with me when I, when I, about his father said, He's, his, his church that he attended in Bristol, Pennsylvania, the pastor one year just happened to be the year that he got saved, this Jewish guy. One month later after he was saved, they were having the Lord's Supper. But before they distributed the elements, the elements with the deacons or elders, whatever they called them at that time, before they distributed them, the pastor saw this presentation the night before, and he got together a napkin, and he put three pieces of matzah in it and a linen cloth, and he told everybody what, what he saw the night before. And he said, my friend, when that pastor went like this, he said he saw his dad doing the same thing every year without any explanation, and this one all made sense. Well, if it would make sense to an unsaved, to a new believer, what do you think it would make to a Jewish person who hasn't seen it before? It might bring them to salvation. So the adversary, this gives too much glory to Jesus, if you will, not only just talking about his death, but his burial and resurrection as part of the Last Supper celebration, if you will. You're welcome to do the same as well. But that, all I'm going to say is, I know that that, di that day they were using matzah when they passed it around, and he couldn't believe his eyes. He was having the Lord's Supper for the first time, and they had matzah, and he picked it up, and he went like this. Hey, it's matzah! Now, you know what happened. He said it seemed like the whole world all at once turned around and went, shh, shh. Oh, I see. It's, this is serious business. Let's not wake up the dead. We're missing the point. Passover has serious business and it has joy. Um, I have some communion lessons that are in the back that I want to share with you before I close. You might want to look at those. Passover is for family members only. No foreigner or sojourner should partake. Neither should you if you're, if you're not saved. If you're not saved and we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, I think I would tell you first, listen, why not come and believe in Jesus now and you can celebrate the Lord's Supper with us together? Because you're not supposed to partake it if you're not part of the family. It's a family. You're identifying with Lord's death, burial, and resurrection every time you partake of the Lord's Supper. Remember that careful search for living? A lot of times where it's also very serious, we're supposed to get out all the leaven ahead of time. Well, maybe some people are confessing their sin like that. 
I think we should take a moment that every man should examine himself, 1 Corinthians 11, and then eat that bread and drink that cup. If you're having issues with someone in your congregation, you need to get that right between you and the Lord and that person. We're a family, so we want to make sure we should confess our sin, throw it away. The only reason that the Jewish woman couldn't throw it away, couldn't throw away her, her leaven, was because it was too precious to her. And I hope some people are, don't do that before they have the Lord's Supper, preparing to go sin right afterwards anyway. Just throw out all the leaven, then eat that bread and drink that cup. What else do we have here? Your, your communion lessons, if you will, we continue. Uh, we let a man examine himself, purge out the old lumber. And it also says, let us keep the feast, not with the leavened bread of malice and anger, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Well, that brings us to the fourth and final cup, the cup of praise, the cup of Elijah, it's sometimes called, because it's, they have a place setting for him every year, a knife, a fork, and a spoon, and an empty chair for Elijah, because Elijah must come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So before we can conclude our presentation and the Passover, the young boy goes to the door. Let's just pretend this is the door for outside, and he'll look, and if Elijah's not coming... Next year in Jerusalem is how they conclude their Passover. <laughs> My mentor, I told this the last time, I can't help it because it's so humorous. He was only five years old and he just learned all the rules for Passover. And his mother and his grandmother sent him to the Lord to the door to look for Elijah. And he, he was serious. He learned all the rules. He thought he had an uncle Elijah. They set a place setting for him. He's coming for Passover. So he goes looking real seriously. No, I don't see him yet. And they said, okay, well, look down the street. Okay. They had him look about four times. He said, and every time he said he was wondering why they, they kept laughing every time he started looking because they know that Elijah really wasn't coming, but he didn't know. They said, one last time, run down to the corner. Maybe he's parking his car. Several minutes later, <laughs> I still don't see him. Take one last look, and if he's not coming, we're just going to have to close the Passover. And he takes one last look, and he goes, here he comes. His eyesight wasn't all that good, and he didn't realize that it was his next-door neighbor, Mr. Thompson, getting home late from work, going to the house next door. But he said, when he said, here he comes, he, he said his mother and his grandmother in unison went, Aah! he said they never let him go looking for Elijah again. Well, Elijah didn't come this year, but next year in Jerusalem. You know, that wasn't a possibility before 1948. And it became a reality in 1967. We're living in exciting times. I don't know how much time we got left before the Lord comes, but it's never been closer than today. Uh, Passover has one of the last things I want to share. Passover has a backward look and a forward look. Uh, they look back on their slavery. They look forward to the promised land with the Passover. Don't we have a backward and a forward look to the Lord's Supper? We look back on the cross, but we look forward to the second coming. For as much as you eat this bread, hope that you'll remember after tonight, it's unleavened, striped, pierced, broken, buried, raised. <laughs> and drink this cup, not the first, not the second, the third cup, the cup of redemption. You do show forth the Lord's death till when? Till he comes. Now that's a sad day. Everybody, long faces. No, we got a big smile, right? You show forth the Lord's death till he come, and that's what we look forward to, the second coming of Christ, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want to thank you all for your kind attention. I think the only way to finish this is to first sing the song as they did at the night when Jesus offered up himself, the night before he offered himself as a sacrifice. It says when they went out that night, they sang a hymn, when they went to the Mount of Olives, that hymn is part of the Hillel, the Psalms of Praise, Psalm 113 through 118. And in Psalm 118, you've heard the words in, these words in Psalm 118 before. Help me sing it, if you will. 
This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. We will rejoice, we will rejoice and be glad in it, and be glad in it. For this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has. You know they didn't sing it in English, right? They sang it in Hebrew. And the line that goes, we will rejoice and be glad in it, in Hebrew goes like this. Hava nagila hava nagila hava nagila venismecha. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for reminding us that we will rejoice and be glad in the day that you have provided us salvation with your crucifixion and your death, burial, and resurrection, which gives us eternal life through you. I thank you, Lord, that you provided us that and that the Passover tells a very clear story of that. I ask, Lord, that as I go forth and uh, be able to share this once again in another church this weekend that they'll, people's eyes will be open, they'll be challenged to, 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 to share and pray the good news of the gospel with Jewish people. And I also ask, Lord, for this church's blessing for having me this evening. And I also ask, Lord, for your blessing upon the Jewish people as we celebrate our Passover on April 11th. I ask, Lord, that just like three years ago when we had it, We had over 90 people, and five people came to believe Jesus as their Savior. This is eye-opening for the lost, but it's also eye-opening for the believer as well. I hope it will make a more meaningful Lord's Supper going forth, and I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom Aleichem. Every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10:30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.